Welcome to the Top Order podcast. Well, we're back to work in New Zealand, and that's meant a little bit of a gap in between this episode on the 28th of January and our last This Week in Cricket all the way back in the middle of Jan. We've got plenty coming up on the podcast, therefore. We're going to talk about the Black Clash. We're going to talk Australia Test and T20 squads, the Super Smash, the BBL, the IPL, and plenty of series going on all around the world. That's all coming up on the Top Order podcast. Stay tuned. So first thing we want to go to, guys, I think is the Black Clash, Stu. So rugby versus cricket. Yeah, look, the, the main thing I wanted to point out here, I mean, I guess firstly, it was it turned out to be a cracking game. The, uh, the cricket side kind of cruised through their game. They they almost did it a bit, a bit arrogantly. They kind of felt like they were going to win the whole time during the batting for a while, even though the rugby guys were going okay. It seemed like they were... They were feeding them some runs. And then things just got a little bit tight near the end and Dan Vittori came on and it was just absolute class. And I, I honestly, it was just such a pleasure to watch that guy bowl again. And he, it, it's been five years since he retired. He hasn't missed a beat. He honestly just came in, dropped every single ball on a dime. There was a clutch situation in the last over. I think he had about eight to defend. He got three wickets in the last over. It just absolute class, and I—I I mean, I'd pick him for the world on on that squad. I'd pick him for the World T20 side. He was just—he was just brilliant. I—I I can't believe how good he was. That's uh, not a great ringing endorsement for uh, Santner, Astle, or Sodi that you're prepared to put uh, a very, very retired, uh, walrus-looking Dan Vittori ahead of them. But he does have some pedigree in winning uh, big tournaments or getting his team through big tournaments. Dan Vittori, doesn't he? Yeah, well, it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't the fact. It's not. It's not an indictment on the others. I don't think he was just such a class bowler, and I guess it made me remember how good he was at the end of his career. It, it just controlling tempo and stuff in those limited overs games. And yeah, I mean, you mentioned it just there. If anyone hasn't seen, uh, obviously last year Dan Vittori had a, a great beard going in the Black Clash, but if anyone hasn't seen it this year, he, he went to another level. I don't know what he kind of had going on. Sort of uh, his moustache was thicker than his beard. It was just tremendous stuff. So uh, I think just throw in Google Images, Stambatory, Black Clash, and, and uh, you'll you'll be delighted with uh, with what comes up. How did he go in the field, though, Lippy, with the modern advent of being able to be a three-dimensional cricketer? Oh, he wasn't. It, it's fair to say he wasn't tested too much in the field. The fielding... Uh, I, I know there wasn't really any examples for anyone to be a, a wonderful fielder, but yeah, the, the fielding standards uh, didn't really get showcased too much. It was just stock standard, pick up the ball either from the boundary or just roll it in from from uh, from the boundary for one. How did um, how did our man Jacob Warham go? Yeah, uh, he didn't. He, he bowled a couple of overs up front. Kind of, it seemed like that's when they were feeding them runs. So they had 190 to uh, to chase down the rugby side, and, and Jake was bowling with about three three slips in the gully for a while there. So it was a, in a T20 game, so it was a bit, a bit unfair on him. Uh, but yeah, didn't really have too much of an impact uh, in the in the game. Batted very low down, didn't even get a chance to bat. Nathan McCullum came in above him, so I'm not sure if, if he just wanted a break in that first innings, or if uh, he just got a bit shafted because uh, well, yeah, I think would have put him ahead some of those guys. 
I think they saved him for the bowling innings after Peter Fulton was kind of cruising there and all of a sudden he decided he was going to go and the next seven balls went for six sixes and a four. That was just some incredible hitting uh, yeah. off the guy he coached in the under-19. So that was a nice little touch. The old, uh, the old bull getting the better of the young buck there. But Peter Fulton was just absolutely smashing it out of Hagley Park. It was wonderful to see. Well, we'll stick with the T20 format. So... Super Smash, BBL and IPL. Should we start close to home with the Super Smash? A, a fantastic 100 for Sophie Devine, probably the most notable thing to chat about. Oh, it's just unbelievable, isn't it? 36, 36 ball 100. She'd just come out of uh, quarantine. So, she, you know, she, it's not like she'd come straight out of the, the nets or straight off the, the middle of her season. She's just come out of quarantine and... and Bashed the 36 ball 100. I mean, just shows her, her class really. And she's been, um, I think she's the second leading run scorer already in, in the, the women's version of that comp. And, um, you know, the, I guess the, the, the real stars, I guess, of the, the White Ferns are coming to the fore. Amy Satterswake is, uh, is leading in the run scoring. And, um, yeah, they, they're, just, they're just, I guess, continuing from last year, those, that Blaze side. On the men's side, it's it's a Wellington fest again. They're they're just doing the job. Canterbury and, and CD are chasing them down a little bit, but yeah, Wellington looked very very classy. And, and Finn Allen is the one making headlines at the moment. Couple of nineties looked very impressive. I think he's, his strike rate's over two hundred or one hundred and eighty or something. It's he's been really really impressive for them at the top of the order. I mean, we're going to get onto it with uh, the. Australian T20 side and, and how they're bringing in a lot of younger players and newer players there. I wonder if someone like Finn Allen gets a shot in that series if they are if they do think it's a great chance to, to kind of blood some players. He moved from Auckland to Wellington in the offseason just to get a chance to play in that Wellington side. Struggled to get a consistent run in the top four or five for Auckland last year, but he's been, really been a revelation since moving to the capital. Oh, absolutely. And um, yeah, I mean, hadn't, hadn't made the greatest of starts to the, to the Plunkett Shield season, but yeah, boy, he's making his mark. And I mean, showed his, he showed, I guess, the talent he's got last year. I think he scored a, a, a hundred for New Zealand A or New Zealand Selection 11, uh, whatever side he was playing for there. So yeah, he's obviously got the class. He's come, come up through the grades and um, yeah, real, really great to see some of those young guys making a mark. We'll hop across the Tasman for the BBL. So we spent at least one episode um, taking the piss out of these rules, Baldy, and one of them, the Bash Boost, has decided a playoff spot. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's been a pretty closely run uh, Big Bash competition. 14 games, 56 round-robin matches uh, in total ha- have come down to the last 10 overs of the last game of the season. The Melbourne Stars, to qualify for the finals, needed to beat the Sydney Sixers and get all four points, including the bash boost point uh, to sneak ahead of the Adelaide strikers and knock them out of the playoff contention. So they weren't able to do that. Ultimately they went down to the, to the Sydney Sixers, but uh, the, the teams sort of four through six are all decided by a single point. So Brisbane heat, Adelaide Strikers and the Hobart Hurricanes all finished at seven and seven uh, for their round robin uh, at 500. But the Brisbane Heat now, or not inexplicably, but um, surprisingly have a home final against the Adelaide Strikers because they got one more bash boost point over the course of those 14 round robin matches than Adelaide. 
who qualified because they had a superior net run rate to the Hobart Hurricanes. So uh, if you can figure all of that out, you've got a, a brilliant math decoder ring uh, to help you out there. But yeah, it's been a it's been a pretty uh, long round robin, but it's been pretty even. I mean, after three games, Perth Scorchers were at the bottom of the table. The Stars were top and they both finished uh, at the opposite ends of the table after 14 games. So it's been an exciting tournament. Um, I think the power surge has had some interesting uh, ramifications, uh, particularly in terms of teams trying to find the momentum in the middle of the innings. Uh, when do they use them? Do they use them early with players uh, in and set? Do they leave it late uh, on in the tournament? I think the only rule change that hasn't made a big impact, I think, is the X factor. I'm not sure that the Sydney Thunder have actually used the X factor more than once uh, over the course of the tournament. Some teams have used it more than others. Uh, but I think that one's probably one that will that might find its way onto the scrap heap. But the the rest of them look they're you know probably here to stay for at least one more season. Uh, but the massive talking point, boys, is is the standard of umpire, particularly uh, the lack of the DRS in in the Big Bash. There's been, and I, I hate pointing it out because uh, I, I don't think it's fair to 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 be overly critical of the umpires. But the standard of umpiring has been widely criticized in a lot of media circles, a lot of newspaper articles, a lot of pundits on uh, the television have been talking about the need for DRS. And I think it just highlights the fact that all of these major tournaments um, really have to have uh, some form of decision review system to help the umpires out. Because unfortunately, over the course of those 56 round robin matches, it felt like that in almost every game that there was a, a decision that was that would have been clearly overturned. Uh, with any kind of DRS and it went against one side or the other. And, and in a couple of games, it made a real difference to the complexion of the match. I guess the other talking point board is just the length of the tournament. I, I've been a big fan of the Big Bash over the past five or six years. It's certainly been my Christmas time of viewing, but as we almost get into February and it almost feels as if there's no end in sight still. Um, what, what, how has that gone down across the Tasman? Not well. Uh, I think there's a lot of... Um, I, I mean, I want to say at the outset, I think everybody is very appreciative of both being able to watch uh, competitive cricket uh, over the over the Christmas period. So, you know, a big thank you to the tournament organisers and all the teams that have put themselves through various lockdowns and and travel bubbles and and hubs and whatnot to to play professional cricket in this period of time. But I think looking back on both the challenges with scheduling and the way that the tournament is structured. The round robin in particular is far too long, um, and we've still got five games to go to decide uh, to decide a winner. So there's a final five now instead of a final four. There's five playoff games, and again, uh, you need to really study the schedule to figure out how that all works. So um, the, the tournament organisers are really trying to milk this for as much uh, TV money and as much TV exposure as they can. But I think they can probably shorten the tournament by four games and make it a 10-game tournament, maybe have two pools, maybe have a ro rotation system like they do with Super Rugby and, and a few other world tournaments, as well as making the playoff system a, a little bit shorter. And they can also use, you know, the time differences across, you know, Australia between the East Coast and the West Coast to schedule games that uh, dovetail nicely back-to-back -back, uh, so that you don't lose out on any TV revenue, but you do get an early game in the Eastern States and then potentially a later game in Perth so that the Perth TV watchers can get their team in their preferred time zone. And who's your pick um, to lift the, the trophy? Look, I think it's going to be hard to go past Dan Christian and the Sydney Sixers. It looks like wherever Dan Christian goes these days, uh, his team wins a tournament. The Perth Scorchers are in incredible form. They've won 
it seems like eight, I think eight out of the last 10 games having started slowly. Uh, I don't think that the Brisbane Heat or the Adelaide Strikers can win four games in a row, which is what they'll need to do to win the tournament. Uh, the Sydney Thunder are a, a dark horse. They're a puncher's chance, but I think it's very hard to look past uh, the Sydney Sixers, who've been probably the form tournament, uh, the form team of the tournament, and the Perth Scorchers, who are in red hot form at the moment. And we don't want to dwell on Australia too much, Baldy. That's never a good thing this side of the Tasman. But if we move to the IPL, auction coming up, I think, on the 18th of February, I read today on Crick Info for those remaining draft spots. But in terms of the released list, it looks like uh, the who's who of Australian cricket. Yeah, a lot of big names have been released by their IPL uh, sides, not least of which uh, test stars Steve Smith, uh, Alex Carey, and also the Australian uh, white ball captain, Aaron Finch, has been released uh, from his side. And, and if you remember back to the IPL, he was actually replaced by Josh Philippe in their RCB side uh, about halfway through the tournament because he just wasn't making runs. His lean trot has continued, and I think it is, is a bit of a concern for the Australian team going into or looking forward to both the New Zealand series that's coming up and also with one eye on the T20 World Cup in India as well. So... Uh, Finch is going to need to find some form, but a lot of those Australians are going to be looking for new homes. Uh, the Big Show, of course, is going to be looking for a new home. And also Daniel Sams uh, is on the move as well. He's been traded uh, to the RCB. So plenty of Australians uh, will feature in that auction, having been released by their, their IPL sides. And if we look around the rest of the traps, lots of white ball cricket going on. West Indies and Bangladesh uh, series, Ireland and Afghanistan and South Africa, Pakistan has just kicked off. Anything caught the eye there for you guys? No, nothing in particular. I mean, there's, there's been a few notable performances uh, in uh, Ireland, Afghanistan. We had Paul Sterling make back-to-back hundreds, but still wasn't enough to put Ireland or get Ireland to win. And uh, Afghanistan, yeah. I guess the, the biggest thing about these games is that, that they've got – I think we've mentioned it a few times, they've actually got some relevance now. So these ODIs, they all play a part in the 2023 World Cup qualifying. And, you know, a 3-0 loss like that for Ireland against Afghanistan is going gonna, is gonna to really hurt their chances, even though, you know, it's two years out from the tournament and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of games to go. And I think for, for a side like Ireland and, and even Afghanistan, the fact that they, you know, COVID hurt their chances of actually getting some cricket on They've now got some on and, and they've really got to make the most of these opportunities, having such limited cricket behind them. When we go to Bangladesh, West Indies, the story there has just been the fact that the West Indies team guys didn't um, decided not to go to Bangladesh and they've just been getting towelled up. Really, their um, backup players haven't really been able to stack up against Bangladesh. Shakib is now back from his, from his band. So, yeah, Ireland is... Uh, sorry... Uh, West Indies have just really struggled and you know we, we talked about it when they were here the depth uh, has been a real problem for them and yeah that they're going to have to really look hard at how they can improve that that depth going forward because you know some even some of the their limited overs players like a Pollard and, and things Bravo you know they're, they're getting older in age so that they do need to refresh that side at some point and yeah they're gonna they're gonna struggle going forward to even make these World Cups if they if they perform like that. Well, that just about wraps up a quick look around the cricketing world. We will be back um, after the swish. Plenty more cricket 
to talk about. Winners and losers of that Australia-India series. England-Sri Lanka has just concluded and England just landed in India as well um, for their four-test series. So we'll be back after the swish to take a look at all of that. So we'll start with my countrymen who've had a pretty successful visit over to Sri Lanka. I guess no better place to start than the skipper Joe Root has had a fantastic series. He took home the um, Moose Man of the Match, I think, um, in the final game and the Moose Player of the Series as well. So a, a couple of pairs of antlers on that flight off to India with him as he uh, packed up his new balance as well. Um, but look, a masterful batting display from from Root. Is he back in that top four, do you think? Oh, look, I mean, it's really hard to say in the moment. And I actually think there's that top four is is somewhat expanding in that, you know, there's, there's guys like Lava Shane and, um, you know, Barbara's arm's never really been put in that, but some people do want to put him in, in that class as well. So, yeah, I, th- I, I do think that, top four is now expanding a little bit or maybe a couple of them are, are breaking away at the top and, and there's sort of a, a second tier uh, of four or five guys that are, that are starting to push them. But I mean, I think you've mentioned it before about what a good player root is of spin and, you know, yeah, he, like you say, he really showed his class. It is very hard to, uh, I feel like it is very hard to say he's back against the Sri Lankan side. We're going to see it against India because I suppose we really rate this Indian side after what they've done in Australia. And Sri Lanka has just gone over to South Africa, really put in quite a poor performance over there. They've put in a relatively poor performance in this series as well. The only other thing I will add to that is that some of those Sri Lankan spinners made it pretty tough work for the rest of the England batsmen and Root certainly stood a class above all of them. Yeah, look, couldn't agree more with that. I think I really enjoyed watching the way both Root and Joss Butler batted. I think they had really, really good game plans. They made that reverse sweep um, and just sort of sweeping all around the ground look so easy, just like a a forward defensive almost and and allowed them to kind of rotate the strike and and move the field. I I think, look, I'm obviously slightly biased because he's an Englishman, but um, interesting stat that I, I, I saw pop up on my Twitter feed that players to score more international runs at a better average than Joe Root, just Virat Kohli, Jax Callis and Viv Richards. And that's the end of the list. So I think that kind of puts his, you know, career performance average are just a tick under 50, I think, uh, with over 8,000 test runs. He's certainly, um, yeah, sort of ignited, reignited, I think, his career and, and sort of maybe got that conversion rate story off his back for a series or two. Yeah, and I saw it. It's his, uh, the first test against India will be his hundredth test, I believe. So, yeah, it's it's sort of staggering the amount of tests these guys. Some, you know, certainly England and, and uh, India and Australia at least play, uh, and make it. These guys can. I don't know. I feel like Joe Root isn't necessarily that old, but he's about to to rack up a hundred tests, which is a yeah remarkable achievement. So just before we move on from the Joe Root conversation, just a clarification for you stats nerds out there. Baldy very quickly uh, jumped on my very bold statement. So just to clarify, um, that stats come from Wisden and it's international runs at a better average. So it takes into account Root as a three-format player, I think. 
Um, so yeah, any corrections, um, send them Wisdon's way. You'll find them at, at Wisdon Cricket um, on uh, on Twitter. Um, Baldy uh, and Lippy impressed with Embaldinia, the left arm spinner, or is that just a, I guess, a little bit of a view of the modern game where a lot of players seem to really struggle against left arm spin these days? Well, I, I always love watching these uh, test matches go on in the subcontinent because you know, from a spin perspective, you you get to see spin play a big role. And I guess what I really about Embaldinia is he just had some magic balls in him. You know, the the way that I guess, you know, a right arm bowler myself, but when he comes in with that left arm, it just drifted. He just, The amount of balls that he bowled that just drifted and pitched on a middle stump for a right-hander and then turned away, clipped the edge of the bat and went to first slip. Was, it was just remarkable. And, and you know, I think, um, you know, Crawley and, and Lawrence and a few of those guys are going to be thinking, geez, we, we haven't done a lot wrong here and, and we've gone out for a few low scores. So um, I just thought it, you know, it's it's re- he he really he really uh, you know he's done a good job at home for for a long time in Bordinia as as long as he's been around and and he he showed his class there and he's got a few tricks up his sleeve so yeah at, for for a series where Sri Lanka didn't really paint themselves in a good light I think their batting obviously was was very very poor most of the time a lot of dreadful dreadful cricket shots Bordinia was actually able to get his wickets through bowling people out and and real class deliveries so yeah I was, I was very impressed with the way he bowled Ricky Arthur was actually very very positive about him have we talked about Mickey Arthur and his comments no so Mickey Arthur in South Africa he was full of excuses as well as against England he's had a number of excuses and one thing I hate about Mickey Arthur is the way that he his tone is. He's sort of he's always got an excuse. It was similar to I don't know if you guys watched the NRL, but Anthony Seabolt in the NRL, where he had a whole bunch of excuses whenever something went wrong, and he often put that excuse back on his players. And it might be accurate. He's talking about game plans and things like that that weren't sort of executed, but he left them out to dry. And I find it very interesting that uh, what do you guys think about that and how he's conducted himself? He has had problems in the past too. Yeah, so you're absolutely right, Raj. Uh, Mickey Arthur's got form when it comes to uh, being challenged in terms of the way he relates to the players in his team. And I think that all really got international coverage when in 2013 he set a bunch of senior Australian players a bunch of homework and uh, asked to figure out ways to improve the team and that wasn't taken very well by the senior players at all and I think that that public fallout from that should have been a real lesson learned in, in how to relate to and, and how to manage those relationships in the dressing room and I, I think he's still probably got a long way to go there to to make sure that the relationships with his players come first and foremost it's it's okay to be critical of, of players in your team uh, but you have to do it privately first obviously and give them a chance to rectify those those issues it's okay to say that you know we didn't execute our plans very well but to to put all the blame on the players i think is i think is not great leadership uh, and certainly doesn't uh, bode well for the type of of players they want to develop in sri lanka because that's really part of his role is to develop some of these younger players uh, grow the game in sri lanka and and try and take their performance from what is really a pretty average test cricket side if you have a look at it on the whole 
and, and try and find some young players that they can look towards in the future. And if, if you're highly critical of young players, some of them respond really, really well to that, but the vast majority after three or four goes will, will switch off completely. Yeah, no, yeah. I, think, I think I was actually, sorry, just to cut over you there, I was actually like a little bit grumpy about that. You might have heard that come out of me, but certain mm. things like where he talks about his, the game plan, that's what I mentioned specifically. He says something here, so I've got a quote. I actually did some research on this. Uh, he's talking about the second innings because that, that was nowhere near our game plan. Uh, our game plan was to absorb pressure and grind away. And then somewhere on further down, he goes, somewhere it went horribly wrong and that's something I'm going to dig up and find tonight. So that, that sort of falls in line with what he was saying in uh, South Africa as well. And he based that around injuries and the LPL going too late into that preparation. I want solutions from a coach, not just putting stuff back on back on their players that, that wasn't good enough. Yeah, well, look, I think it's highly unlikely we get Mickey Arthur on the podcast now. But yeah, look, I, I suppose from... Yeah, from, from an outsider's perspective, he's always been a bit of a whinger, hasn't he? And I think with all due respect... Yeah, definitely not now. Yeah, with with all due respect um, to his... Uh, yeah, to, to, to the Sri Lankan team, he's kind of going down the echelons in terms of his international coaching career. And look, I think, yeah, the modern... Yeah, the modern coach, I think... And you look at soccer as an example of this as well. A big part of their job is to take pressure off the players uh, to allow them to go out and express themselves, not to make excuses for them, but certainly to take pressure off. And, and he seems to be taking the opposite um, the opposite approach. England move on to India. What are your guys' thoughts on the ins and outs of that England side? I guess we're going to see more and more of this in COVID. I've got my take on it, but yeah, interested to get your guys' thoughts. I, I do think it's kind of weird that they're rotating players out of their test side. Um, and to me, this going to India and a series in India, they, they're still a chance to make the World Test Championship final. It, I, I mean, it's it's a very much an outside chance, and India are a tough side to play at home. But to me, I, I still think that I still view in my head that Test cricket is the pinnacle. You've got an opportunity here to go and show that you're one of the best Test sides in the world. It surprises me that they are resting players, perhaps so that they are fresh for the IPL. You know, like, I, I don't know what you think as a fan. Maybe the cricketers think that's really what I need to be fit for and where, I need, where I'm making my money, and I can completely understand that. They've all been in bubbles. I, I do sympathise a bit with them. But from a cricket board point of view and, and then looking forward as a fan, where you want your best players to be playing, it, it would disappoint me a little bit if I was a big England fan. I guess what I find interesting about that whole situation is that they've kind of already pigeonholed them a little bit, saying that that person is a white ball cricketer. So, for example, Johnny Vesto, he's got a white ball contract or whatever, but he was selected to go to Sri Lanka as number three batsman, yet he, he's being rested in test cricket, yet he's being rested for the white ball series coming up afterwards. And um, also with Joss Butler going home, do you find that weird at all, playing one test and then... And then hitting off? Well, I think the ECB are, are being forced to make decisions um, very closely in conjunction with the players because I think they've they've recognised that they opened the door uh, after a little while for England players to go and play in the IPL. And I think there was a lot of pressure um, on on the England board to uh, to allow that to happen uh, from a from a you know a, a money earning point of view for, from the players. 
But now we're sort of starting to see England having to make decisions. And it's a pretty unique set of circumstances in that they've got two winter tournaments uh, in the IPL, sort of almost back to back. So normally an English winter would only have one IPL tournament. Now it's got two. Uh, so they're being forced to kind of figure out how to use um, all of these players and move the pieces around the board so that they can get uh, as many of those players rest as they can in preparation for them to have a massive payday in the IPL, which is what these guys are up for. So, you know, you talk about Joss Butler, Joffre Archer, uh, Stokes, Curran, um, Bearstow, all of these guys are, are getting a lot of their earning potential from playing in the IPL, playing in that big tournament. Um, and unfortunately for England cricket fans and, and for test cricket fans in general, England are now having uh, are almost being forced to, to get the the big wooden sticks out in the war room and there's you know people with a big map and and you know calendars and stuff pushing the pieces around the chessboard trying to figure out how they make this test side work it looks like a pretty good test side to me uh, there's still plenty of firepower there to, to take on a resurgent Indian team but you know if, if I was if I was an England fan I'd be a little bit gutted that we couldn't have our best team on the park. Uh, at the same time, but Australia, we're going to cover them in a little bit in terms of their tour to South Africa and New Zealand, and they're having to make the same kinds of decisions. I just wonder if this is a one-off thing because of the way that the cricket calendar is post-COVID, or if this is going to be an ongoing um, decision that players are going to have to make, what tournaments they they make themselves available for, which they're in, completely entitled to do. So, yeah, look, it took every inch of my being to, to stay quiet as, as you all sort of went through those, those views. Um, look, I think for, for me, I'm going to go against my normal grain here. Um, I'm not going to agree with you, so don't, you know, don't get too shocked. But I, I think from the perspective of what England have, have done, they've probably had to make decisions with an imperfect set of information and probably not in a timely fashion as well two test match wins in Sri Lanka, you know, against a poor Sri Lanka side, but still not to be sniffed at going away and winning on the subcontinent. And that's a pretty good overseas run for England with their uh, recent series in South Africa um, and, and Sri Lanka previously as well now. But I'm going to take a slightly different take on it in that I don't actually think it's about a payday and maybe I'm getting a little less cynical in, in my old age. I think that they might have actually said, you know what? we're not going to make this test championship final unless we win all four games in India. And that looks like it might be the permutation. There's a T20 world cup coming up. And I think that the reason they want their players to be playing in the IPL is nothing to do with the payday. It's actually to do with getting them in Nick for that T20 um, world cup and probably to kind of boost their egos a little bit with the bank balance um, that goes along with that going into that, you know, going into that tournament absolutely agree um, that I think there's a lot of pundits out there that are saying, you know, would you not want Butler who's just had a really, really good series with the gloves and two very, very significant contributions with the bat to be going and playing all four of those tests in India. Um, but I'm going to take the counterpoint that they're actually taking players out of the fire, firing line, giving them a rest before any potential injury overload or even mental health issues are going to come up rather than waiting for a player to say, do you know what? I'm a little bit burnt out with this bubble life. So, you know, that's my view. And, and look, only time will tell if that's going to bring the on-field um, success. But as you've said, I think it's a, a very difficult set of circumstances that we're in with COVID around. And um, potentially, you know, all those results on the field are, are slightly less important than the two or three-year 
picture of the mental health of these guys that were asking to spend a lot of time in bubbles. What um, what do you think Binksy will happen when Josh Butler leaves? Do you think that's uh, a Bearstow is going to take the gloves or your man uh, Folksy is going to get a go? Yeah, so look, I think it makes a really, really, um, yeah, really, really good point as to what they do there. Um, the, the fact that Bearstow, um, you know, is is in and around that squad, the fact that they've got um, other options in that respect is is solid. I think it's going to come down to the other batters in that side. So um, it's going to come down to whether or not they give Dan Lawrence another go. Um, it comes down to whether or not Rory Burns walks back into that side at the top of the order um, at the expense of maybe nudging Crawley down one. Um, because I think, it, you know, it's going to be a situation, I think, where if those guys aren't firing, then, you know, they are going to want to look uh, at potentially that wicketkeeper batter that they, you know, that they think is... Um, um, is, is going to provide that sort of middle order ballast at six or seven so they can squeeze that extra bowling or batting option in. On, on the actual tests coming up, Binksy, I mean, do, do you hold England any chance? I mean, from a New Zealand perspective, we certainly want you to go over there and, and take a test from India so that we can, uh, you know, get our way into that test championship final. India's obviously played very well recently. England, as you said, have played very well. We talked about what a good player of spin Joe Root is. Can they go over there? They've, they've got plenty of match winners in that side. Probably my big, biggest question would be whether their spin department is going to be able to cut it over there in India. Yeah, look, I, I think it comes down a, you know, a, a very, very large amount um, to whether or not I think they can get Moen Ali on the park. I do think he's a better off-spinning option than Don Best because he gives it a bit more of a rip, to be honest. It you know, gets a bit more shape on it for me. I'm sure you'd have a view on that. Um, Jack Leach is an honest performer, and I think on a spinning wicket, um, you know, is it, pretty decent. But you know, we, we've shown by the fact that you've got Jimmy Anderson and Mark Wood bowling high proportions of maidens, and, and at times doing the holding role in that Sri Lanka series that you know they don't really. Um, necessarily trust their spinners as much and root has often been criticized as a captain as not knowing how to use his spinners um the answer to your question though is i don't i don't hold out much hope india have just come off a fantastic series which we're going to talk about against australia they're in their backyard they've got coley back in the side um i think they're just going to be too strong um for england i think england will nick a test um but um weather permitting and and whatnot i think it's a 3-1 series victory to india around the room. Anyone else think that India, uh, England can, can steal a test, even? Uh, I don't. I think that it'll be, <laughs> it, 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 it will, um, it'll be India or the weather, I think, will um, we'll, we'll take the games here. I just think that India, India's lineup, when you look at who's come back in, I think we've mentioned Kohli, Sharma, Ashwin, Hardik Patel, Hardik Patel, Hardik Pandya, and just a whole list of names and the people that they've left out and the people that they've left out like Saini and Naharajan who, who, who just excelled in Australia. I just, I just don't see what's, I just don't see England, England beating them. However, what I will find interesting is what kind of pitches they turn up on. I think everyone thinks that they're going to turn up on, on, on dust bowls, but I have a feeling that they will turn up on pitches that are a little bit green. Yeah, I certainly think I certainly think it behooves India to produce Test wickets that are good for batting because they've got a fantastic batting lineup. 
And they've got a pace attack that's as good as any in the world. I mean, you add Ishant Sharma and Jasper Brummer back into that side that dominated Australia. Um, all of a sudden, you know, test heroes Shakul, Shadul Thakur and Mohammad Siraj, they, they might not play. Washington Sunda might not play in this test series because Ashwin is back. Um, Jadeja is still not fit, uh, at least for the first couple of tests. So that Indian attack could look completely different from the one that won famously in, in Brisbane just a couple of weeks ago. I think England have got enough in them to be able to take one test off India, but I don't think they've got any more than that. I think it'll be 3-1 to India as well. Yeah, look, I, I'm along the same lines. I just think India's played so well recently uh, and, and and kind of done it, it the way they did it. Surely that, that squad and the spirit around that squad has got to be sky high. And, you know, I think coming back, they've, they talked a lot about um, how tough it was to be away um, for that length of time, a lot of them were away for yeah, a really significant amount of time when you add on the, the ODI series and, and the T20 stuff as well and all the quarantine time. And that, yeah, they're, they're just going to be buzzing to be back home, I think, and, and uh, really showing what they can do and, and continuing on this run. They've now got the World Test Championship to push for. Yeah, I, I feel like it's going to be tough. I do think England's batters have the, the ability to kind of last a while and actually, you know, potentially force some draws, perhaps. Um, but I think, as you mentioned, that Indian batting lineup, if they can if they can perform and they can produce wickets that, you know, aren't aren't dust bowls or aren't terrible pitches to bat on and, and scores of 400 and 500 are possible, then yeah, it's going to be really hard for, for England to break through it, it as well as, um, you know, someone like Jimmy Anderson still is, is bowling at his age. Yeah, I just think that Indian batting lineup is going to be going to be too good. You didn't give us the numbers, too. Oh, I'd, I'd have to say, I'd say, I'd say three nil, which uh, which does make it tough for New Zealand. I think. I think we need need uh, we need South Africa to take a test off Australia, but yeah, we'll 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 just cross that bridge when we come to it. But yeah, I think if I if I have to actually pick a number, uh, let's go three nil to India. So before we leave the. First segment of this part A and part B podcast. Part B will come on to in your feed very shortly, winners and losers of the Australia-India series. Let's just take a quick look at the permutations in this World Test Championship. A little bit easier to understand than the Big Bash rules, Baldy. Oh, just, there is a great tweet uh, from Michael Wagner, if you can find it on um, on Twitter. He, he describes the possible permutations, all possible permutations for the World Test Championship. And Adam, you'll be happy to know that mathematically England can still make the final. In fact, there could be an Australia-England final. So if England uh, win 3-0 or 4-0 and Australia beat South Africa 2-0 or 3-0, it will be an Australia-England final at Lords. Um, for England to make the final they against New Zealand, and that would be the most likely outcome, they would need to win... Uh, 2-1 or 3-1 or 1-0, 2-0, 3-0 or 4-0. And that would that would almost certainly guarantee um, an, Australia, an England-New Zealand final. An India-New Zealand final, final is possible uh, with an India victory 4-0, um, 3-0, 2-0, 1-0 uh, or a series draw, 0-all, 1-all or 2-all. So India beating New Zealand is, uh, sorry, India beating England uh, comprehensively is good for New Zealand. Um, and would more than likely guarantee an India-New Zealand final 
if Australia can't win 2-0 or 3-0 against South Africa. So draws in South Africa, very, very good for India, England and New Zealand in terms of making the final. It is possible for Australia to play New Zealand in the final. There are various permutations that are possible there, but almost all of them rely on either a 2-1 series victory, a 2-0 series victory, or a 3-0 series victory against South Africa. And then for India to, to win that test series against um, against England. It is possible for Australia to play New Zealand in the final if somehow England were to win uh, sort of 2-0, 1-0, or there'd be a nil-all draw. So uh, lots of different permutations are out there. If you, if you find Michael Wagoner on Twitter, he's got a nice little table that explains it much better than I can uh, doing it justice here. But effectively, every side other than New Zealand now has it in their own power to make that World Test Championship final. Series wins or or resounding series wins will almost certainly put England in the final. Uh, Resounding series win would put India in the final unless Australia can pull off a 2-0 or 3-0 victory against South Africa, which would almost certainly see Australia in the final, likely against New Zealand. Yeah, very well done if you've managed to understand all of that after listening to those millions of permutations. Well, I guess from, um, you know, trying to put some context into it, what are the actual most likely outcomes you think, given that we think that India is going to win the series and let's say Australia is going to win their series against South Africa. Yep. What what do you think the most likely outcome is in terms of the final? Yeah. So, so given... Let's let's say given that India win 2-0, 3-1, 3-0, or 4-0 against England. So those those four kind of outcomes. Unless Australia win 2-0 or 3-0 against South Africa, India and New Zealand will play in the World Test Championship final. So for New Zealand fans, if you think India is going to beat England comprehensively, you want South Africa to take a test off Australia um, in terms of a win or a couple of draws in that series. So a 2-0 or 3-0 victory for Australia would see Australia play India in the final. Anything less for that than that for the Australians, and it's an India-New Zealand final. On the other end of the spectrum, if England can beat uh, India comprehensively, then it would be an England-New Zealand final. Again, unless Australia win quite comprehensively against South Africa, uh, then it's Australia-New Zealand or possibly Australia-England if it's a 4-0 England victory over India in the Test Series. Cool. So before we move on then, guys, we can be a little bit parochial about this, but ideal world, who would we want to see in that uh, final? Everyone gets a, a two-word answer. New Zealand. Or three. <laughs> uh, I, look, I want to see New Zealand and India. I mean, uh, it's... <laughs> we're, I mentioned it many times. I can't cheer for Australia, and I think the most likely outcome for New Zealand is for Australia to drop a, a test, or just not, you know, whether to play a part or, or do something uh, for them not to comprehensively win that series against South Africa. So yeah, that's that's what I'll be cheering for. I do, th- yeah, I do think it would be great to see New Zealand over there against uh, India, and and uh, yeah, trying to trying to get that belt. For me, uh, I want I want Australia, India, Australia, in in England. That would be interesting, but I don't. I think that's very unlikely. Uh, but that's I want I want to play Australia in the final. It's not often you hear me be parochial, but I would actually like to see Australia versus New Zealand at Lords, because I think that would be a very very interesting Test match. I think it will be a far different proposition than. Uh, 
New Zealand's last tour to Australia, and I would like to see Aussie New Zealand in the final at Lords. For me, um, so I've got a caveat here. So I'm not going to pick England in the final, which will probably surprise you guys. I also want to know what cricket ball is going to be used in that final. Is it a Duke because it's in England or is it a Kookaburra? Um, but I would love to see that Australian attack up against that Indian attack with the Duke's cricket ball at Lords. That would be my that would be my dream. It would be very, very tasty. Probably it's BYOB. Bring your own balls. <laughs> Not not with the Australians, mate. They'd uh, they'd be spending twenty four hours on their their Qantas Bunnings flight, wouldn't they? Well, look, that just about wraps up this episode of the Top Order podcast. In a preemptive strike to maximise our strategy, when our ad revenue starts to kick in, we are going to split this episode um, into a part A. Um, part B, because we've got a lot to talk about when it comes to winners and losers in that Australia uh, series that has been billed as one of the greatest test series, certainly in our lifetimes. So do look in the feed for part B of this episode of the Top Order podcast. Um, But for now, good night, God bless, and we'll see you in the feed very, very quickly.